Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler, The Gangster is suitable for ages 12 and up and contains graphic violence. The Gangster is also available as a signed, numbered, limited edition hardcover while supplies last. To order, go to scottsigler.com slash store. Hello, junkies! Guess what? I'll tell you. We went over 1,000 reviews of Mount Fitzroy over at audible.com. That took only six weeks to get to that number. So if you rated and reviewed Mount Fitzroy and Audible, I will, I thank you. I thank you so much. If you're still listening or haven't got to a rating and review yet, then do it now. Or when you finish the book, go ahead and do it then because it doesn't take very long and it really helps a ton. And if you're waiting for the print book or the ebook, they will be out 12-3-21, only 10.5 months to go. It's going to be gone before you know it. I am so tickled pink, so grateful for all of you and happy that I have, I seem to have done a very good job entertaining our faces and ear canals because did I mention the book is a 4.9 out of five stars across those 1000 reviews. Boom. That's pretty darn good. I'm super pumped. I'm now going to get you caught up on the story of the gangster. And then we're going to have episode number seven. That's right. It's game time. Previously on The Gangster, the Krakens have gathered in the subterranean city of Harlan for Hokor the Hook Chest's solidity ceremony. The being that led them to a pair of T1 championships is no more. Quentin, Becca, Jodo, and all their teammates prepare to say goodbye. Solidity. The Ionath Krakens gathered in the stadium tunnel. No helmets this time, no jerseys, no armor. They dressed in each culture's colors of mourning, and they all wore a sash of pale blue that ran from their right shoulder to their left hip, a quith tradition to honor the passing of loved ones. For Quentin's entire football career, he'd been a bottomless well of strength from which others drew. Here, now, facing this crushing moment, he had no strength left to give. It's time, Becca said. Quentin, do you want to lead us out? He did. Of course he did. He was a leader. He would lead. He took one step. His leg wobbled. He started to fall. An iron-strong arm wrapped around his waist held him up. I got you, brother, John Tweedy said. Quentin regained his balance. His body felt drained. Inside him, a gray blankness weightless and dense all at the same time. Becca stepped away from the team, stood at the tunnel entrance. Let's go, Krakens, she said. The team didn't sprint out to the sound of thousands of rabid fans. Instead, 
They walked, slow and somber, onto an end zone painted a shade of amber, thick black letters across it spelling out headhunters. A strange, clutching gravity dragged at Quentin. His feet didn't want to work. He watched his shoe slide across the amber end zone, over the white goal line, and onto the magenta field. Milford, Denver, Haywick, and the other Sklorno came out of the tunnel with the rest of the Krakens. But when they saw the platform erected at midfield, they collapsed into a wailing, twitching pile of over-the-top heartache. Covered head to toe in pale blue fabric, they thrashed side to side. Eye stalks flopped about like spastic snakes. Backfolded legs kicked out, making the other Krakens dodge away. Quentin stared at Milford and the others, at their wiggling, squirming sadness. Their wails echoed off the stadium's mostly empty seats. He wanted to go to Haywick and Naimi, to Vacaville and Wahiwa and Sheboygan, tell them that everything would be all right. But that would be a lie. Oh man, Jude Tweedy said. The girls are super mega bummed. The big running back sounded super mega bummed himself. It struck Quentin that he'd never seen Jew wear a shirt and a tie before. Everyone had dressed their best. John had actually combed his hair. George Starcher wore what looked like a priest robe, burnished silver with black trim. The team's quith warriors had traded their gray sweatpants for ones of white, had painted their carapaces light blue. Someone gently urged Quentin forward. He tore his eyes from the grieving Sklorno, kept moving toward the place he did not want to go, the platform, where he would have to accept that Coach was gone forever. Tears didn't streak his face, yet his eyes refused to dry. Between blinks, the world shimmered. Quentin couldn't get Becca's words out of his head. Without Hokor, would Quentin have made it to the upper tiers? Probably, but not certainly. Despite Quentin's physical skills, despite his accomplishments in Tier 3, he'd been branded with one inescapable label. He was a Nationalite. Experts said that Nationalites weren't smart enough to handle complex offensive schemes. Nationalites couldn't get along with other human cultures, let alone other species. Nationalites weren't sophisticated enough to handle leadership duties and the pressure involved with such a high-profile position. Oh, sure, Nationalites could scramble. They were big and fast and strong, but they didn't have the intangibles that made a real field general. Everyone had known these things were true. Everyone, except Hokor, the hook chest. Because of Hokor's belief, Quentin had accomplished so much. He'd become a Tier 1 starter. He'd earned all-pro honors. He'd been named the GFL's most valuable player. He'd won two Galaxy Bowl titles. An orphan from a young age, Quentin couldn't remember his mother or his father. How strange that the sentient who taught him to be a man wasn't a man at all, but rather a quith leader. Quentin felt a hand on his right shoulder. He glanced that way. Through shimmering eyes, he saw Yasud Murphy's sad, understanding smile. Yasud had threaded his braided black beard with a pale blue ribbon. Easy, Q-Dog, Yasud said. We'll get you through this. Quentin felt a touch on his left shoulder, Chodo the Bright, squeezing gently, ever aware of Quentin's healing collarbone. Be strong, Chodo said. We are with you. Swirls of purple washed across the warrior's cornea. Purple, a color of anguish. Quentin wasn't the only one who was hurting. Chodo's pale blue paint made him look oddly festive. Pishore the Fang, Tara the Freak, and Virak the Mean had also painted themselves. 
It was nice that Virac was with the team for this, instead of at Greedock's side. Quentin wondered if that was Virac's choice or the little leader's order. Perhaps 500 sentients stood in front of the stage erected at midfield, all wearing pale blue sashes atop their clothes. Quentin recognized former teammates currently with other franchises. Buddha City Elites Perth and Rick Warburg, Ban Teru from The Orbiting Death, Jupiter's Don Pine and Scarborough, Mesquitic from the new Rodina astronauts. And there were those who'd fallen from Tier 1 or had retired. Paul Pearson, Tom Perilous, and Pete Marval. Roth O'Lorick and Wena Derrett. Richfield, who wore the official orange and black robes representing her position as High Priestess of the Church of Quentin Barnes. Even Standish had made the trip, her sclorno hips widened by the childbirth that had ended her career. It was good to see Richfield, even from a distance. The last time he'd seen her, they had been on Ionath, in a secret meeting set up by Massal. She lived in Ionath City, ran the church from there. It was close to the godling, but Quentin never visited her. He told himself that was because he wanted nothing to do with the church, but in truth, there never seemed to be time, even to visit an ex-teammate who lived in the same city he did. Richfield, along with high-ranking COQB members Hoyt Bogard and Who Love Q, had helped Quentin create the schism that divided his church into smaller sects. That division got the CMR off his back. To think the CMR had considered killing him because other sentients made the weird decision to worship him like Haiwan himself? So strange. Yes, the schism had freed Quentin from the threat of the CMR's outsized retaliation, but the story had set Sandoval on a deadly course. If Quentin hadn't done that, would Coach still be alive? Yes, but Quentin might be dead. Was one outcome better than the other? The leader had been a hard coach. He'd rarely shown any emotion other than anger. He'd done little to demonstrate that he cared about his players, and yet here they all were, showing their respect. Commissioner Frost hadn't exaggerated about safety for the event. Everywhere one looked, one saw white-clad GFL security forces. Sklorno in power armor, standing along the sidelines. Hurrah, flying overhead. Visibly armed Quith warriors, humans, and Heavy G in the stands. The stadium seats and support structures gleamed a light amber, the color of the crystalline organism that made up most of the city's buildings. The place could hold perhaps 33,000 fans, a far cry from Mayanath Stadium's capacity of 180,000. That was Tier 3 for you. Smaller stadiums, a smaller stage. Past Harlan Gardens' top rows, Quentin saw amber skyscrapers and the long, shallow arches that connected the city's buildings. He'd been to OS-1 and OS-2, seen the wild, nigh-uncontrollable crystalline tangles produced by the microscopic organisms that grew buildings, bridges, streets, city domes, even stadiums like this one. In OS-1, the buildings and tangles were blue. In OS-2, green. Here, though, there were no tangles, no army of spider-like crawlers cutting back the ever-growing material. Maybe by the third try, the quith had perfected the technology. It made him wonder why there wasn't an OS-4. He wiped his eyes, adjusted his sash, focused on putting his heartbreak in place. He had to set an example for those who walked with him. For Becca, John, Jew, and Shoto, of course, but also for the rest of the Krakens, humans Yotaro Kobayashi and Samuel Darkai, Cliff Frost, 
Alexander Michnik, and their long-armed Heavy G teammates. The flowing, walking X-forms of Cormorant Bumberpuff, Katzenbaum Weasley, and the other Prowlot. Mumo Killowy, Shoto Thicket, and the rest of the key linemen, massive sentience with six legs and four arms. The crowd parted, allowing Quentin and his teammates to stand at the platform's edge. On the platform, a speaker's podium and a squat white pillar topped with a white cushion. Resting on that cushion, a dark blue gemstone the size of a golf ball. All that remained of Hokor, the hook chest. Fro stood next to the pillar, as did Greedock the Splithead and a quith leader with olive-colored fur. Chalton, the Moral, Lord Governor of the Quith Concordia. Chalton wore even more jewelry than Greedock, which Quentin wouldn't have thought possible before that moment. Quentin stared at the dark blue gem. Emotional gravity again pulled at him. He gripped the platform's edge to keep from falling. It would all be over soon, but until then, he had to stand on his own two feet not let his weakness dishonor Hokor's memory. Commissioner Fro stepped to the podium. He wore his normal white shirt and red tie, but he'd added a blue jacket with the GFL logo stitched on the left breast. Good afternoon, Fro's speaker film amplified voice echoed through the stadium. Welcome to the final solidity ceremony of Hokor the Hook Chest. The commissioner paused, seemed to gather himself for a moment. Was this hard on him as well? In Hokor's last two seasons, the Ionath Krakens won back-to-back Galaxy Bowl titles, Frost said. Winning one championship is a major accomplishment. Winning two is extraordinary. Through my many interactions with Hokor, I came to understand things about him that he rarely said out loud. He was proud to be the head coach of the Krakens. Above and beyond that, he was proud of his players. The words intensified the lump in Quentin's throat, made the world shimmer anew. He wasn't alone. Around him, he heard coughs, throats clearing, and a few sobs from his human and heavy G teammates. Strange, sad noises from the key and the quith. Behind it all, Quentin heard the distant echo of Denver and the wailing Sklorno. Frost continued. The last time Hokor and I spoke, I asked him what he thought would define his legacy. He told me, without a moment's hesitation, that his greatest accomplishment was finding a way to make his players come together as a team. More sounds of mourning from the Krakens. The commissioner's words magnified their raw emotions. Just a hint that Coach had actually cared made this even harder. Quentin closed his eyes. He pressed his lips together, fought against the coming tears. Now, we will hear from the sentient who knew Hokor better than anyone else, his Shamakath, Greedock the Splithead. The crowd applauded politely. Greedock stepped to the podium. Quentin gripped the platform's edge. He would not applaud. The coward Greedock lived while the brave Hokor did not. As much as Quentin had loved Hokor, something Quentin finally accepted, he hated Greedock even more. Greedock was a threat to all Quentin held dear. Someday, perhaps soon, Quentin would have to deal with the Splithead. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, 
It's vital for Piura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Gem-studded necklaces rested atop Greedock's pale blue sash. Bracelets gleamed. The leader's lustrous black fur seemed to catch the stadium's amber light. He gazed out across the gathered crowd. The bastard actually managed to look magnanimous. Hokor was an exceptional vassal. Some wonder why I ordered Hokor's final solidity ceremony to be here, why his stone will not be kept at Ionath. There is no need for it there, as Ionath Stadium houses the true talismans of his greatness, Galaxy Bowl trophies that immortalize him even beyond the eternal existence of a diamond. Inside Quentin... Seething anger replaced draining grief. Greedock was trying to act like having the ceremony in Harlan was his idea? Frost would go along with the act, Quentin knew, because the commissioner didn't want controversy. Frost wanted the GFL to appear to be one big, happy family, not the dysfunctional, crime-ridden organization that it was. Greedock gazed at the white pillar, at the glittering blue stone resting atop the white cushion. I chose to leave Hokor's final solidity here so that the city of his birth can treasure his memory just as we will treasure it in Ionath. Liar. Liar. Quentin wanted to shake Greedock, stomp his skull flat. Greedock faced the crowd, his jewelry sparkling in the powerful artificial light. I will leave you with this thought. A tragic death does not detract from a glorious life. When Hokor pledged his fealty, he promised to bring Ionath a second GFL title. He delivered, but that was not enough for him to express his devotion to me. To properly prove his loyalty, Hokor said he would not rest until he brought me my third title as well. Consider his loyalty proven. In life, loyalty is all that matters. Hokor the Hookchest, my vassal, you will be missed. Loyalty? The Blackford monster didn't know the meaning of the word. Quentin fought the urge to climb onto the platform. Greedock stepped aside as Frost again took the podium. 
it is my honor to introduce our final speaker. His presence at this ceremony conveys the importance Hokor held in our sport and in our cultures. Sentience of all races, welcome the Honorable Chalton the Moral, Lord Governor of the Quith Concordia. Light applause, muted whistles, soft clicks, a half dozen species giving quiet respect. The Lord Governor was the Concordia's equivalent to the President of the Planetary Union or the Purest Nation's Grand Mullah. Charlton stepped to the podium. The leader wore so much jewelry, it was a wonder he could walk at all. One piece stood out prominently, a heavy silver necklace with what looked like a small lead pipe for a pendant. Hokor dedicated his life to the sport of gridiron. Therefore, I will speak in English, the language of the sport. That way, the billions of sentients who held Hokor in high regard can follow along. Because he was more than just a citizen of the Concordia, more than just a quith leader. He was an icon of our galaxy. Something about the Lord Governor held Quentin's focus. Five hundred or so sentients on the field, yet Quentin felt Charlton was speaking directly to him. Quentin imagined everyone in attendance felt the same way. It wasn't hard to see why Charlton had become the leader of 170 billion Concordia citizens. The sport of gridiron has a rich history. I quote an ancient philosopher coach, a human who was integral to the sport's earliest days. This philosopher said, Football is a great deal like life in that it teaches work, sacrifice, perseverance, competitive drive, selflessness, and respect for authority is the price that each and every one of us must pay to achieve any goal that is worthwhile. Quentin recognized the quote. It was from Vince Lombardi. No wonder Charlton chose it. Respect for authority was the basis of the quith culture of the entire species. Whether it be a conscious choice or a biological drive, the quith obeyed. Hokor first learned those lessons, and then he taught them. But it's another quote by the same ancient human that I think better summarizes the hook chess career. The philosopher said, The greatest accomplishment is not in never falling, but in rising again after you fall. How well that applies to Hokor. When he became the coach of the Jupiter Jacks, his tenure lasted a single season. He was fired, yet he did not quit the game. He did not abandon his quest for glory. Charlton paused. The leader glanced at the cobalt blue stone resting on the white cushion. Quentin wondered if the pause was genuine, the Lord Governor thinking over his words, or just the affectation of an experienced politician. Hokor started over as the coach of Ionath, Charlton said, again facing the crowd. Slowly, inexorably, he pursued his goal. First, he found his true Shamakath. Charlton pointed a pedipal panda Greedock. Then, he built his team. The Lord Governor took in the Krakens with a sweeping gesture. And, finally... He found his quarterback. Quentin felt a surge of embarrassment. This wasn't about him. When it came to football, everything seemed to be about him. In his younger days, he'd relished the attention, craved it. But that was before he learned to be more than an individual, before he learned to be part of a team. Perhaps success was inevitable for Hokor. The hook chest would not stop. He would not accept anything less than a Tier 1 title. Had he survived the cowardly attack, he might have bred, might have started a line of his own, but that chance 
is gone. His energy has passed. Only his solidity remains. He brought glory to Ionath. He brought glory to the Concordia. May Hokor the Hook Chest be remembered long after our own energy is gone. The Lord Governor stepped back from the podium. There was no noise, no polite applause. The sentience on the field moved away from the platform. Quentin turned to Chodo. What happens now? The ceremony is complete, the blue-painted warrior said. You are free to leave unless you wish to address the crowd in order to convey your feelings and therefore better manage your emotional state. Becca slid her hand into Quentin's. He won't be speaking, she said. He answers enough questions as it is. She squeezed, and it surprised Quentin that he had enough strength to squeeze back. Strength seemed to flow from her straight into him. He could get through this. He could make it off this field without breaking down. His Valkyrie would help him. Thank you, Quentin said to Chodo, then said the same thing to George, to Josh Athanas, to Tara the Freak, to Trevor Haney, to the teammates who had all stood close to him, shoring him up when he could barely stand on his own. He tried to say the same thing to John and Jew, but they hugged him instead, their powerful arms squeezing him tight. Bro, I'm so super sad. Coach was mega. Mega, mega, Jew said. John ruffled Quentin's hair. I'm sad, but I'll be happy soon. You know what I mean? As far as sucky lives go, Hokors was like the least suckiest ever. The unexamined life is not worth the paper it's printed on, as they say. Jew wiped away a tear. Coach's life was super examined, super duper examined. Amid the grief, the pain, a small spark of joy. John and Jew didn't make much sense, but Quentin understood their intent, agreed with their message. Hokor had lived a life of greatness, a life to be celebrated. I love you guys, Quentin said to his brothers. He gave them each a final thump on the back, then let go. He sniffed, rubbed the tears from his eyes. Becca leaned in close, whispered in his ear, Richfield would like a word. You up for that? Was he up to talk to the leader of his church? Someone who literally thought he was a god? No, not really. But Richfield had been so instrumental in Quentin getting his life back. The least he could do was share her pain. Sure, he said. He realized that his teammates, massive individuals by any measure, had formed a small circle around him, keeping away well-wishers. Becca stepped aside, letting Richfield into that circle. The Sklorno came closer, her four eye stalks quivering with grief. At eight feet, five inches tall, she was one of the few sentients Quentin had to look up at. Her entire body shook, but she managed to stay standing, managed to keep her raspers rolled behind her chin plate. For a Sklorno, her composure was exceptional. My condolences, Godling, Richfield said. We have lost one of our galaxy's guiding lights. The Church of Quentin Barnes supports you. Her orange and black robes weren't just immaculate. They glimmered, as if made from precious metals. Quentin glanced at the necklace that signified her office. The severed pinky he'd had cut off in Galaxy Bowl 27 so he could stay on the field and win the game. The shriveled finger looked like a gnarled tree branch dipped in gold. But there was more to the necklace than had been there before. The chain was thicker, gleaming links of gold, platinum, and gypridium, each link engraved with glowing pink lines of chisonite 
a substance Quentin had heard was one of the most expensive materials in the galaxy. Thank you, Quentin said. You must be hurting as well. Yes, 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 godling. I miss Coach already. Quentin nodded, feeling a small bit of solace in the shared pain. Why did someone else hurting along with you make the hurt less? You look like you're doing well for yourself, Quentin said. The robes, the necklace, the COQB must not be hurting for money. He'd grown up seeing ostentatious displays of religious wealth, seeing privileged people grow fat while the rank and file of Macoby starved, wallowed in debts that could not be repaid. He loved High One, but hated religion. To see Richfield adorned with such trappings sickened him. He'd meant his words to cut, slightly, to subtly remind Richfield that worship was supposed to be about the message, not material possessions, but she'd missed his tone completely. Yes, 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 Richfield said. Our advertising on the Galaxy's Greatest Sports Show brought in many donations. Then donations increased a thousandfold as the glorious, holy, undefeated season progressed, and another thousandfold after you miraculously rose from the dead to lead the Krakens to glory. Rose from the dead? Richfield leaned closer. The false media did not report your death in the touchback explosion, but your faithful realized the truth. The church has so, so, so many funds now, godling. Millions and millions and glorious millions. Does the godling need funds? Anything the godling needs, I will provide. What he needed wasn't something money could buy. What he needed was for Hokor to actually come back from the dead. But that wasn't how things worked. If Richfield was becoming just as bad as the mullahs, that wasn't something Quentin could deal with at the moment. It was good to see you, Quentin said. I have to go. Richfield bowed deeply, a graceful move that folded her trunk in half. The gilded pinky touched the magenta turf. She stood, walked out of the circle of friends that closed behind her. Becca again took Quentin's hand. Together, they walked toward the end zone and the tunnel that would lead them out of the stadium. The moving circle of friends stopped. In front of John Tweedy stood a worker wearing a dark gray uniform, as immaculate and wrinkle-free as Massal's clothes always were. The worker swiped his left pedipalp hand over his antennae, the quith gesture of polite deference. Elder Bards, I am Mondal the Appeasing, honored assistant to Charlton the Moral. My apologies for addressing you at this emotional time, but the Lord Governor would like to personally offer his condolences. The shock of the comment cut through Quentin's grief. The Lord Governor wants to talk to me? That is correct, Elder Bards. Becca again whispered in Quentin's ear. Don't be surprised. You led a quith team to a pair of championships. Charlton is a politician. This is a photo op for him. Quentin whispered back. Yeah, but still, the Lord Governor? If you're up to it, talk to him. If not, we're out of here. He'd met one head of state, Petra Prawat, the leader, or creator, or ruler, he still wasn't sure, of the Prawat Jihad. But this was different. Quentin was a legal citizen of the Concordia. He no longer had any ties to the purest nation. The Concordia was his home. Despite the ache in his chest, despite the fact that he wanted to sleep for days, Quentin couldn't bring himself to disrespect a request from the Lord Governor himself. Thank you, Mondal, Quentin said. I'd be honored. Please follow me. Mondal led him back to the platform. Three solid warriors melted out of the crowd, falling in behind and at their sides.
Quentin knew those warriors would take him out if he made any hostile move toward the Lord Governor. Quentin glanced at the warrior walking on his right, saw Becca and Shoto keeping pace. To the left, another warrior, and past him, John and Jew, faces hard and focused. A quick peek back at the third warrior. Bumberpuff and Shoto Thicket were right behind him. The Lord Governor had bodyguards. So did Quentin. The three warrior guards stopped at the platform's edge, turning back to face Quentin's teammates, sending a clear yet subtle signal that the Kraken's players were to go no further. John and the others stood there, ready to act if need be. Quentin felt self-conscious at his teammates' imposing presence. He also felt honored, knowing they would defend him without a moment's hesitation. Quentin followed Mondal onto the platform. Please wait here a moment, the worker said. Quentin found himself standing next to the white pillar, next to the dark blue stone that had been his coach. Hokor's energy, gone. Quentin's own piece of Hokor, the championship ring, was on the Hypatia, in a hidden compartment built by the Portath. When someone was gone, they were gone. All the things left unsaid remained unsaid. Quentin hadn't realized how much he'd loved Hokor. If he'd told Hokor, would it have mattered? Coach had died for him. Of course it would have mattered. It sheared Quentin's worldview. He could die for someone, for his teammates, for Becca, but that someone would die for him? Two plus two equals five? It didn't click. He looked out across the field, saw the sentience moving toward the tunnel, the various exits. And there, in the stands, a massive heavy G, Michael Kimberlin, standing alone. He hadn't been with the team. Why? Because he'd been in the guild and Quentin knew. Hesitantly, Big Mike raised a hand, a half-hearted, unconfident wave at Quentin. Mondal walked across the platform, followed by the Lord Governor of the Quith Concordia. Elder Barnes, Shelton said, I am sorry for your loss. Quentin looked back to Mike. The man was walking away toward an exit, his back turned. Too late to wave back. Did Quentin even want to give her gesture of friendship, of familiarity? He didn't know. Elder Barnes? The leader of the Quith Concordia, using that maddening honorific. Quentin needed to focus his attention on this sentient. Please, call me Quentin. Very well, Charlton said. Quentin. Up close, it was easy to see the strands of white lining the olive green fur, a sign of old age not dissimilar to gray hair in humans. Charlton seemed an ancient, brittle thing. The Lord Governor waited. Quentin remembered Quith Protocol. He was supposed to kneel. It wasn't a gesture of subservience, as it was in some human cultures, but rather common courtesy, so that a three-foot-high sentient didn't have to stare up at one who stood seven feet tall. As soon as Quentin's knee touched the platform, memories rushed in. How many times had he gotten down on one knee to talk to Hokor? How many times had the furry quith leader in his tiny Kraken's ball cap told Quentin exactly what to do? How many times had Quentin smiled and said, Just give me the ball, coach? Hokor brought pride and glory to Ionath, Charlton said, to the entire Concordia, as did you. For that, this nation celebrates what the two of you accomplished together. Together. 
The tears came again. The lump in Quentin's throat stopped him from speaking. He was distantly aware of the cameras aimed his way. Yes, this was a photo op, a chance for the Lord Governor to be seen talking with, quite possibly, the most recognized sentient in all of history. Quentin knew the reality of the situation, but the leader's words seemed so heartfelt, so real. Couldn't it be both things? Political posturing and a genuine expression of sympathy? Charlton the Moral reached out a pedipalp hand, patted Quentin's shoulder. We, Quest, do not have the capacity to cry like humans in key, but we understand the depth of emotion that brings tears. I know it is hard for someone as young as you to lose a powerful influence on your life. Have faith that, soon, your grief will diminish. You will be left with the glowing memories of a life well-lived and a friendship so strong it survives beyond the boundaries of our fleeting energy. Quentin stared at the leader. Charlton seemed to shimmer, sharp and in focus after each blink, wavering through tears in the millisecond that followed. Perhaps we will meet again sometime soon, the Lord Governor said. Hopefully, under brighter circumstances. He gave Quentin's shoulder another pat, then turned and walked to the platform's far edge, where a pair of workers helped him down. Mondel the appeasing quietly stepped closer. Thank you for your time, Elder Barnes. He handed Quentin a small data cube. If you ever wish to visit the capital and perhaps dine with the Lord Governor, please do not hesitate to contact me. The worker scurried away. Quentin stared at the cube in his palm. Just a data cube, like any other, but this one could connect him with the leader of the Concordia. The minds of McCovey had never seemed so far away. Come on, sugar, Becca said. Let's go. Quentin looked up to find her standing next to him. Together, they stepped off the platform and walked toward the end zone. Their friends silently fell in around them. You have been listening to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series, written and narrated by Scott Ziegler. Follow Scott on Instagram and Twitter, where he is at Scott Ziegler, one word, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Ziegler. For more information on the Galactic Football League series and for more free audiobook podcasts, visit scottsigler.com. The Gangster was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2020, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song They're Watching Me by the band Super Weapon. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. 
As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. 